0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Health Rules podcast. This is the podcast where each episode we build a checklist around some important health topic. This session, we will build a checklist directed at healthcare providers or physicians. We are releasing this podcast right around the time of Earth Day 2021, and I thought it appropriate to do a topic around climate change and the climate emergency. So on April 6, 2021, just a few weeks ago, Earth passed an important milestone. It was 420 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Now why is this important? It's because that's the halfway mark for us to be doubling the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. CO2, as you know, is a very important greenhouse gas. It is uh, to a very large extent responsible for keeping us warm. It's a blanket that covers the planet. And so although nothing suddenly changes as we hit this, this threshold of 420 parts per million, um, it is imp- it, it does show how far we have come with climate change. CO2 and other forms of carbon are called greenhouse gases. They trap the heat, and so If we were to go ahead and double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which we are well on the way to doing, then we would trap a whole lot of heat. Imagine sleeping under twice as many blankets at night in bed. You would get very toasty and warm. But on an an Earth global level, it's a real problem because that extra warming means a whole lot of extra melting and a whole lot of extra changes in climate patterns. So it turns out that the planet is sensitive to even small increases in average temperature. A rise of about one and a half degrees centigrade is going to be bad, but most people agree that this is really what we want to target. Unfortunately, uh, we are on a path to have much, much more warming. But even just two degrees centigrade, which at this point looks like maybe it's our best case scenario, is far worse than 1.5 degrees of warming. Two degrees centigrade means large-scale flooding, crop failure, wildfires, and the death of nearly all coral reef and dramatic changes to how habitable our oceans and, and uh, waterways are. So at current rates of admissions, by the end of century, we probably will see something like three, four, five degrees centigrade of warming. Uh, and this is, this is expected to be a, truly a devastating situation if we, if we get anywhere even up to three and above. Uh, particularly concerning is this idea of tipping points. The more warming we get, that means more polar melting, which means the release of more carbon trapped in the Siberian permafrost, and also it means reduction in the amount of sunlight that we reflect back into space. And both of these things cause a vicious cycle because they cause more melting, more warming, which causes more melting, which causes more warming, and so forth and so on. Unfortunately, it looks like some of these cycles might have already begun. Most experts believe it is not too late to intervene, but we have to make pretty dramatic changes, like fundamentally significant changes to how we generate power and how we live our lives, and we need to do it now. So climate change causes a host of health problems. Both heat and carbon dioxide in the air have been found to impair our ability to think. Um, Altered weather patterns are a direct consequence of all this uh, extra greenhouse gases and all this warming, and and that's where we, we see things like drought, crop failure, wildfires, food insecurity, flooding. The list goes on, unfortunately, and we're already seeing it. So a rising sea level is another consequence, and that's partially because of the expansion of water, partially because of the melting of water, and partially because uh, with Greenland melting, it is offloading some of that weight on the tectonic plate, which is causing our tectonic plate to shift, and the U.S., particularly U.S. East Coast, is sinking so the worldwide burning of fossil fuels also releases toxins and pollutants like particulates and ozone sulfur dioxide nitrogen dioxide mercury arsenic and chromium and it does it on a massive scale particularly damaging is burning coal but natural gas is certainly also part of the problem and and these consequences of all this is uh, damage to our land our water and our air and we humans face the consequences one example would be pm2.5 the particulates these tiny little particulates in the atmosphere and these cause real health problems when we when we breathe them and there's a growing body of scientific literature showing this so we we can measure the increase in in deaths from not only lung disease but even cardiovascular disease and other other diseases by by virtue of us breathing these particulates a recent study found that uh, particulates account for about 18% of deaths worldwide so to solve the cr- climate crisis the planet needs behavior change on a massive scale enter the physician you know that is what we do we we try to help people make behavior change that is healthier most of the remedies uh, to climate the climate crisis also benefit the health of our patients so it's a win win Healthy behaviors um, can also be a win for the, the loved ones and, and for the community. So it is maybe it's a win-win-win-win. So one example would be switching from animal-based nutrition to plant-based nutrition. This is p- a powerful step to reducing our, our footprint on the climate because animal agriculture has been found to account for more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation combined. And it's also a win for our health because plant-based nutrition overall, when consumed in a whole, unprocessed state, is very, very healthy um, for our bodies and our mental health. Red meat in particular is extremely damaging to the planet. Cattle is the problem. They are very, very carbon intensive. um, And they account for the lion's share of the carbon emissions and rainforest destruction that the livestock industry is responsible for. So we physicians can also help adopt those those behaviors that will protect ourselves. And when we adopt those behaviors for ourselves, we're doing it for the planet. We're doing it for our patients because we will be more effective in counseling our patients. We're doing it for uh, our loved ones. So there are myriad reasons why we ourselves should try to tread lightly on this planet. While we physicians can accomplish a lot by just advocating with our patients, I think it's important that we, that we know that we need to reach outside of the medical office as well. We need to advocate. We need to inform ourselves. And so this discussion that we're going to have today is going to delve deep into just those topics. I have the pleasure and privilege of bringing on board Dr. Ankish Bansal. So Dr. Bansal, I happen to know from years ago because he did his residency training here in the Delaware area. <clears throat> he is a hospitalist, a telemedicine physician. He is governor-elect uh, designee of the Florida chapter of the American College of Physicians. He is president of, of the Disaster Accountability Project, He's an expert and an investigator, and the list goes on. This man is extremely accomplished and knowledgeable, particularly in the area of how the climate emergency affects the health of our patients. So I think you're going to find this a really interesting discussion. I'm really excited to share this with you. So, and with that, no further ado. Um, Dr. Ankush Bansal, welcome to the Health Rules podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, we have we we are old friends. We know each other for many years past. You need no introduction with me, but could you introduce yourself to our guests? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Um, so,
1: my name is Ankush Bansal. I am a hospitalist and telemedicine physician um, involved in very many things. I'm board certified in internal medicine as well as lifestyle medicine. Um, I did my residency up in Delaware, and that's where I met Dave um, when I was doing my training, uh, but I currently live down in South Florida. Um, my main passions are lifestyle medicine, which is basically preventative medicine through diet, exercise, uh, connection, and, and, and a few other factors, and then how climate change affects
0: health. Hmm. Now, I know your resume is considerably longer than that. In fact, you have one of the busiest uh, business cards I've ever seen. It just goes on and on and on with your certifications. And among them, you're the governor-elect of the American College of Physicians for the state of Florida, right? That's correct. Which is huge. Congratulations. Local boy looks good. Thank you. Super, uh, super proud and excited about that. But you you have your hand in so many other things, right?
1: Yeah, so I am involved with a organization called Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. I'm actually one of the co-founders and co-chairs. Um, I am on the board of the Florida Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Um, I'm with the Florida Chapter of ACP, as Dave mentioned. Um, I'm a delegate to the American Medical Association from Florida. I'm um, also chair of the um, associate members section of the e-health and medical technology task force at the World Medical Association.
0: Okay, and you've been active with the United Nations, right? To uh, promote um, climate health, is that not correct?
1: Yes, uh, so through the World Medical Association, um, I attended one United Nations meeting, this was all pre-COVID, um, regarding the um the effects of climate change. Um, and uh, this was back in 2019, um, was the last meeting that uh, people could actually go to. And that was before COVID.
0: And on top of all that, and just still we're just scratching the surface, but you are board certified in lifestyle medicine and a hospitalist. So you have that fairly unusual um, skill set of working sort of treat the, the treatment of the underlying cause of disease into your uh, clinical practice as a hospitalist. That's right. So um,
1: what I found is that um, patients who come into the hospital, most of the time, um, except for the few cases when it's an accident, like a trauma, or a um, infectious disease, like a, a serious infection, it is because of things like heart disease, diabetes, or lung disease, and most of the time that is because of lifestyle habits. So I use that opportunity as a teaching moment um, to help patients understand what happened, how they can prevent it, and how I can help them stay out of the hospital, which everybody wants to stay out of the hospital if they can in the future.
0: That's that's really remarkable to use that as, as a hospital. Most people think of the hospitalist as, the, the last person who's going to be talking about these these lifestyle changes, but you you see it the the, the reverse that uh, this is a this is a teachable moment for for patients and uh, and and now the time to um, start talking about uh, lifestyle habits uh, when they're lying there in the hospital bed.
1: That's right, and and most of the time um, the patients who I talk to they're very receptive. Um, I'll do things you know like change them to a plant based diet which most of the time it starts out with moans and groans like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. But remarkably, by the end of the hospitalization, most of my patients are like, wow, I really like that. I'm going to try that when I go home and see if I can continue that, which Mm. is fantastic.
0: That's that's pretty bold of you. You must have to sort of uh, um, bend, bend some arms and and uh, do some contortions to try to get a plant based diet prescribable in the hospitals you work at.
1: Um, yeah, usually it's, it's, it's not very straightforward. So usually in the hospital, we'll write, you know, like a normal diet or we'll write a diabetic diet. What I end up having to do most of the time is saying, let's say, for example, a heart healthy diet, but then I'll have to add on in the comments, you know, like no meat, no eggs, no cheese, <laughs> um, you know, explain what that means, like what I'm looking for, because they, most of the time, they don't have something that says plant-based diet, vegan diet, vegetarian diet. So I have to, I have to list it out.
0: Right, heart, yeah. Like people's concept of heart healthy, even in the medical profession often is, is not very close to what's probably actually heart healthy. Um, maybe heart, just heart health, if it's, if it's healthier than a cheese steak, then it's heart healthy, it seems to be the standard. Um, right, exactly. Uh, so, uh, and how can people, um, if, if they wanna follow you or um, if they wanna make use of your services, how can they engage?
1: So uh, probably the easiest way is to reach me by Twitter, um, and my handle is at drakb1.
0: Got it. Easy enough. Um, so we want to jump into the business of building a checklist, and uh, what what topic do you suggest we build?
1: Um, I would uh, I would say let's start off with. Uh, talking about climate change and health and specifically how to help patients um, navigate the effects of climate change on their health and their particular situation whether it's socioeconomic
0: geographic or what have you okay this is huge this is huge so basically a checklist for physicians to address climate change on behalf of their patients that's correct all right, well, let's get started. What is that checklist? What is it that we physicians and other providers should, should do on behalf of our patients? Now, first of all, why is this a big deal? I mean, is it that big a deal? Do we, do we really need to worry about that when we've got so many other things to worry about with, for our patients?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, the first reason is because, um, as we all know, climate change is getting worse each year. You know, We hear on the news media, oh, last summer, was the hottest summer on record. Well, you know, after about 10 years in a row of, oh, last summer was the hottest summer, it's like, well, how far can this go? Well, it keeps on going. We haven't, we haven't heard, oh, wow, this was the coolest summer in 20 years. Hasn't happened yet, at least not so far since 2000, I haven't heard that. Um, the second thing is, is that we're getting more severe weather events. Um, here in Florida, it's hurricanes we're getting more hurricanes, more severe hurricanes, and while they may not be affecting the typical cities like Miami as much, they're moving up the coast and they're affecting more states. So they're moving up to the Carolinas and Virginia, they're moving up the Gulf Coast. You know, Texas has gotten hit a lot by hurricanes in the last few years. And what and let's just stick with hurricanes for example, what that causes is number 1 Um, uh, stress and issues with mental health because their property may be destroyed they're out of work they're stranded um, they can't afford they they, they can't get food they can't get to their jobs um, they can't get medicine the second thing is trauma Um, the third thing is infections because you've got all this water coming in all these pests coming in um, which leads towards um, infections you know like Zika, chikungunya, um, dengue, a lot of these diseases that have come in. Um, The third thing is, you know, you can get hurt by falling debris or washed away debris, the flooding, all of those sorts of things. In addition, we have more fires, for example, in the West. which as everybody has seen every single year has become more severe, affected larger swaths of land and affecting more people. We get more floods um, and severe storms in the Midwest um, and even storms up in the Northeast. And so this is affecting everybody in terms of their livelihood, but also their health. So think about if you're on a lot of medications, and you've got very te- tenuous um, uh, medical problems and you're not able to go to your doctor because the doctor's practice has been washed away, for example, or the pharmacy has been washed away or they can't even get supplies to the pharmacy. How are you going to take care of your illness? And on top of that, you've got the stress of losing your house, losing your job, your your kids being sick, um, whatever, they can, or, or you're having a broken leg. How are you going to take care of that? And so it leads toward it leads toward um, uh, more health problems and more death.
0: Bottom line translates to more death. I mean, I, I would imagine when you get wiped out by a hurricane or a flood, um, your socioeconomic status is going to take a big hit. In other words, you're never going uh, to, not to say never, but you're going to be kind of sort of transported to a um, less secure financial position, right? And that that seems to be one of the most reliable predictors of um, ill health and uh, early mortality. Uh, they say your zip code is a stronger predictor of your life expectancy than is your genetic code. So I could see how um, you know these these natural disasters uh, can be a very big problem. Um, and some of it's even more subtle, right? Like because you have um, some of some of these. Um, Uh, elements that are characteristic of climate change, the emissions, the pollution, that carries with it uh, health harms as well, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about air pollution, um, you know, this directly affects people who have diseases like asthma, which is becoming more common, especially, unfortunately, in children. Um, as well as uh, lung diseases like COPD, chronic obstructive lung disease, Um, and it's not just in people who are smokers. So I'll give you an example. Uh, When I was at one of the United Nations meetings, there was a a lung physician um, from New Delhi, India. He's actually one of the world experts on how air pollution affects lung disease. And he was talking about um, lung disease in New Delhi. Now, granted, New Delhi is far more polluted than any other city in the U- than any city in the US. It's actually more polluted, generally speaking, than even Beijing, China at this point. But what he was saying is that he's done a few research projects and he's looked at the lungs post-mortem, so after, after death, of patients um, who lived in the city versus those patients who lived out in the rural areas. And these were people in their, let's say, 20s. And their lungs looked like people who had been smoking for 30 years, despite the fact that these people had never smoked a cigarette or a cigar a day in their life.
0: Oh, my goodness. That's, that's so tragic. And uh, I guess it's uh, appropriate to say that uh, some of these particulates and, and uh, pollution doesn't just affect lung disease, right? I mean. Uh, now, there was a recent report that uh, the PM 2.5 particulates were causative in the death of 18% of people worldwide, something like that. Uh, and a lot of these deaths are cardiovascular. They, they, they cause inflammation throughout the body. Uh, uh, they cause heart attacks. They cause strokes. They cause cancers, right?
1: Absolutely. So so one of the tenets of cardiovascular disease, both heart disease and stroke, is that there is this thing called the two-hit hypothesis. You need both the um, cholesterol or the fat buildup in the arteries from the foods that you eat, but you also need inflammation. So, what they found is that these particulate matters obviously, they're not going to increase the cholesterol, but they're going to increase the inflammation quite a lot. So that's why it directly affects the heart and the brain in terms of cardiovascular disease. Um, So yeah, you get more heart attacks, even just chest pain, which which is basically a precursor to a heart attack if it's not caught early enough, which is why they say whenever you have chest pain, go to the ER right away because you may have a heart attack. And if we can prevent the heart attack from happening, that's going to be so much better for your heart. But in addition, it increases the... Um, the, the, the rate of, of worsening heart failure, as well as the severity of heart failure for very similar reasons. Because in heart failure, your heart is already so weak. If you're going to add on inflammation, it's kind of like flogging your heart. And your heart's already so weak, it's already getting beaten up every day. And now you're adding something on top of it, your heart's just going to get to a point where it just quits.
0: Yeah. So a very, very important topic, um, not only um, for the current health of our patients, and again, this checklist is going to be for we physicians and other providers, but it's also an important topic for the future too, right? I mean, this is like epically important. Uh, they, they call it a climate emergency. Um, we're very, very close to tipping off to sort of a, a point of no return, right? Uh, tipping off these uh Uh, positive feedback loops, these vicious cycles where you're going to get runaway release of carbon from uh, Siberia and you're going to get runaway warming in the poles. Uh, Does that sound right to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the important things is it even goes beyond carbon. It's all of the other particulates, um, the nitrates, um, the sulfates, uh, the PM two point five, all of those play a factor. Yes, carbon is is the big player, but it's not just carbon. It's not just oh, if we can get a carbon sink and absorb all the carbon, that's going to fix everything. It'll make a big uh, it'll make a big uh, um, uh, dent, but it's not going to be sufficient.
0: Right. So there's so much so many uh, uh, points we can make about climate change, but let's get to the let's get to building this checklist. We want to, we we as physicians are like. What can we do? Uh, You know, we recognize this is a big problem and hopefully we recognize and hopefully the medical communities and uh, American Medical Association seem to be coming around to the idea um, that uh, we really need to do something about it. But what what can we do for our patients?
1: So one of the big things that we can do right now is address the social determinants of health. Now, this is a fairly new topic that's come up in medicine. Um, It's not new in that It's new and affecting our patients. It's just new that we've recognized it as new. And what social determinants of health means is that based on your geography, your race, your zip code, your socioeconomic status, that has a direct effect on your health. And it's not something that's political there's actually science behind it there's there's research behind this that it does make a a very big difference in fact there's been a few studies that have shown that if you live in one zip code this is your life expectancy but if you live in the zip code maybe like 20 miles away the same metropolitan area but a different zip code your life expectancy may 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 increase three to five years now that doesn't make any sense Except that in one zip code, they may be poor, have 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 lower access to care, maybe more pollution, maybe less things if you're in the south like air conditioning or public transport as compared to the other zip code, which in some cases may be more affluent, maybe a different race, um, may be um, have have more services available.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so th- this is interesting, this link between climate and social determinants of health. So can you elaborate on how that works?
1: Yes, so going back to heat, the heat example, let's say I'm, I live in Florida. So, you know, most of the year it's fairly hot for most of Americans that, that you need air conditioning. And, and, there's even, and, there's, and there's even an air conditioning company ad here um, down in South Florida that says, you know, in Florida, Air conditioning is not a luxury. It's a necessity. It, it, it really is. And for those people um, who are of lower socioeconomic status or financial means, you know, they may not be able to either A, afford air conditioning, B, afford the electricity for the air conditioning such that they get behind on their electricity bills and their, and their electricity may get shut off or C, can't afford the maintenance of that air conditioning that's probably running most of the day, if not all day, every day. Um, So what that does is let's, let's say we have a patient with asthma. They've got the inhalers, they've got the medications, but it's always hot. And with that, especially living in Florida where it's a more humid environment, it gets more humid and heat and humidity will attract more pollutants and they'll breathe in those pollutants, it'll cause inflammation and asthma. Basically the way it works is you get a lot of inflammation in the lungs and you have trouble breathing. So that's where that comes in, where air conditioning is important. But if you've got pollution on top of it, air pollution in the surrounding environment, that person really doesn't have much of a chance because as soon as they step outside, they're gonna have an asthmatic attack.
0: Okay. so. Our our step one here is address social determinants of health. Well, that merits its own whole set of checklists, but um, briefly with respect to the climate change issue, um, what can we do as physicians to address this?
1: Sure, so the first thing would be to address their symptoms and their treatment. Number one, are they managing their symptoms? Do they understand their symptoms? And with that, do they understand what the triggers are? For example, heat, pollution, either in the house or outside the house, people that are smoking, either inside the house or outside the house, is their car in working order? If they use public transportation, is the public transport reliable? But also, is it? are they using clean energy when possible? Obviously, the patient has no control over that. Um, But that'll come later towards advocacy. So, um, So that's where you start off with. The third thing is, do they have adequate AC and or heating, depending on where they live in the US? The third thing is, going back to the medications, are they even able to afford the medicines? Are they even able to get the medicines, either to go to the pharmacy or have it delivered to them? You know, that's a big thing that people are talking about for the last few years, that medicines are unaffordable. Well, we can do all this stuff for climate change, but if they can't afford the medicines, then you're kind of stuck right there. So that's where I'd start off with, addressing their environment and their ability to get medications and manage, understand, and know the triggers of their symptoms, whether it's lung disease, heart disease, or kidney disease, for example.
0: So it seems like part of the task for the physician is to know what services are available and yes. make sure that patients are availing themselves of those services.
1: Yes, and that may require um, enlisting help. So for example, from social work or from government agencies, You know, like senior services or, um, uh, or, or other services from the government. That also means that, for example, let's say you have a patient who is an asthmatic or with COPD, and their electricity has been shut off for non payment. To enlist the help of social work and get in touch with the utility company and say, look, we understand that there's non payment, but electricity is a requirement, it's a medical requirement for this patient. In most jurisdictions, and you have to check your own jurisdiction, but in most jurisdictions, if it is a medical necessity, the utility company is barred from shutting off the electricity. Because okay. they may need it for AC, they may need it even for oxygen tanks.
0: That's helpful. So, I mean, you know, addressing social determinants, it can be a very, very tough challenge, but um, some of the lower hanging fruit would be make sure that uh, they're getting um, breathable air and adequate air conditioning, um, getting things like that paid for where there's public assistance, um, addressing the medication affordability, which you can do through getting people onto generic medications. Um, potentially disease reversal with lifestyle medicine, right? Like, yes. so that people don't need those medicines in the first place. Um, and, uh, and then there's the transportation issues. Sometimes there's free transportation services, especially to and from medical facilities. So you kind of have to become an expert on what services are available in your area, right?
1: That's right. It's going beyond, you know, diagnosing and treating, but knowing your community and understanding your patient holistically like what are the challenges that they face and how can you help obviously you're not going to be able to fix everything but you can you can enlist help to help you with that
0: mm-hmm. at the united states we spend a lot of money on healthcare, but we spend way less money um on on social services than than do other countries um rel- relatively right. speaking and uh, so i guess the the onus is on us, the physician, to make, make up for that gap through, um, you know, better connecting people with what's available. Okay, anything else to to mention with regard to social determinants of health? Um, so
1: the social, we we kind of you kind of touched on the lifestyle. So that's another thing that I would recommend um, discussing with your patients, um, understanding what their limitations are geographically and financial. But you know, for the broadly speaking um, recommending to them to focus more on a plant-based diet and again it doesn't necessarily mean they have to go vegan because it may not be possible where they're living um, especially if they live in a food desert but as close as they can get to that um, within affordability and availability um, you know i've worked in a lot of food deserts and it can be really hard to find fresh items Um, In which case they may have to find, uh, may have to get packaged or processed items. But to teach them, okay, how to read labels, what to choose, um, how to divide your plate, um, that will help a lot on A, controlling their, their diseases, B, reducing their medication burden or even getting them off of some medicines, and C, improving their health in the long term, and also D, preventing hospitalization as much as possible.
0: So we talk about healthy lifestyle. Yeah, you want to reverse somebody's um, COPD, or you want to minimize the progression of it, or, or their heart disease, you, you know, you want them to exercise. Um, so food, agreed, food is super important. And food, the nice thing is, you you don't, you know, is provided you can get it, provided you're not in a food desert, you can get healthy food and eat it. Um, in, in comfort of your air conditioned home but what about getting outside on those days when the ozone level is really high the particulate level is really really high the air is unhealthy how do we get exercise in that setting yes
1: so so the next thing would be to teach patients about okay you know on a hot day or so on on a hot day check your weather report, either on the radio, on your phone, on TV. See what they're saying about the air quality index, seeing what they're saying about the ozone level and what the forecast is. If it's a day where they're they're saying that it's likely to be an unhealthy air day, um, whatever metrics they use, you know, still go outside to get exercise and fresh air. But don't go in the middle of the day. Go either in the morning or in the evening or both, because the air pollution level will likely be lower. It'll be less hot and you can still get fresh air. Now, if you're an asthmatic or somebody with COPD, obviously have your inhalers with you. Um, If it's a polluted day, probably may not wanna go outside that day, uh, like a very polluted day, or as we're all doing right now during this pandemic, wear a mask. Um, that, that may be helpful as well. But generally speaking, you want to go in, uh, at the less hot parts of the day, which generally will be the less polluted parts of the day,
0: okay. which is the
1: morning or the evening.
0: So important to get those steps in if you can. At what point is it, um, is it better to just not exercise? The, the air is so bad that you just, just become sedentary. It's a better option.
1: I don't think there's I can't think of of a time when it's not good to exercise. You just have to be creative. If you can't exercise outside, you can exercise indoors. You know, you can do you can do certain activities indoors. It, you know, it's it's you don't have to be doing aerobics or running a marathon or calisthenics or crossfit or anything like that. That's not necessary. Any kind of physical activity beyond just normal walking around the house or getting up from the couch to the kitchen and back or from your desk to the to to the kitchen and back that's 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 really the minimum that's that's needed
0: okay understood all right so we're we've addressed social determinants to the best we can today and that's obviously a a lifelong pursuit to continue to keep trying to um, improve that for our patient population um, and then you've, you've talked to the patient about the importance of lifestyle, um, because um, I guess it's particularly, would you say it's particularly important uh, in the setting of climate change for um, someone to, all, all the more reason to um, try to reverse those chronic diseases, I guess. Um, I don't yeah, know.
1: I, I would go with the latter, that it's all the more reason. I don't know if it's more important because of climate change, but it, 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 has a bigger impact because of climate change.
0: Okay, because climate change puts you at risk for more diseases, um, so all the more reason that we've, we've got to live that healthy lifestyle. So insert discussion here about the, the six pillars and um, diet, whole food, plant-based, and and exercise, um, <clears throat> being mindful of food deserts and other challenges to, uh, in a, in a socioeconomically disadvantaged setting. Uh, what else are we gonna put on this checklist uh, of of how to address climate change for our patients.
1: So the next thing would be to um, eliminate uh, harmful habits. So number one on that list is smoking. So if you smoke, right. So if you smoke, all the more reason to quit smoking, not just for climate change, but it's 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 better for your health, even if you don't have lung disease, because it will directly affect your cardiovascular health. and you may say, well, my patient doesn't have heart disease right now. Well, let's keep it that way that they never have heart disease, at least not from smoking. Um, so you want to help them quit smoking. And that requires an ongoing process. It's not just, you know what, you need to quit smoking. You, let's, let's set a quit date for, for eight weeks from now. No, it's more than that. It's coaching them along. And then once they do quit, checking in with them, on a regular basis, whether it's six months or every year to make sure that they haven't fallen back into that habit. It's also excessive alcohol consumption and drug use as well. Um, so that would be the next thing um, because that also affects uh, your health, particularly in climate change, um, sleep habits, uh, because you know if you don't get restful sleep or enough sleep, that is going to affect uh, inflammation and stress in your body and as we've said climate change increases inflammation and stress on your body so you don't want to be doing anything doing anything to help climate change del- deleterious
0: effects. Okay so sleep sleep's important um, and it's always important for almost every disease process. That's right. But um I guess uh in the setting of climate change, it's like all the other lifestyle factors, it's it's uh, yet more important.
1: Right, so the next thing that I would address is from the physician perspective, is advocacy on the micro level and the macro level.
0: Okay, great. So,
1: so on the micro level, and what I mean by micro level is for your patient or patients, Um, And I gave one example, you know, like, for example, somebody who doesn't have air conditioning because their electricity got shut off, um, you know, find out either directly or through um, assistance from from those that have more knowledge about that, about how to get their electricity turned back on, at least for the air conditioning. Um, It's also about mold. So let's say you have a patient. Who lives in a rental property, and they've reported that there's mold in their in their residence to their landlord, and their landlord hasn't responded in a reasonable time. Um, you know, help that patient get in touch with the authorities to get that rectified, because mold directly affects their health, um, and mold may also ha- uh, be increased because of climate change, especially in humid. Um, climates, for example, in Florida, if it's more humid, you're more likely to get mold, especially when it's hot and humid. Um, The third thing is um, from a macro level is to advocate for your patients um, as far as public transport. So a lot of cities, they may have public transport, but it may not be very accessible Um, or very useful in lower socioeconomic areas, um, which is a problem because those are, that's the population that needs it the most uh, because they may not be able to afford a car um, or they may just be going short distances to work or to the store. So advocate for public transport because as as we know, public transport directly reduces the amount of air pollution um, that is put out into the atmosphere. Um,
0: okay, so it sounds like um, part of the job here is letter writing, right, as a, as a physician, write, write letters. Um,
1: yep. it, can be, it can be letter writing, it can be responding to action alerts. If you have time, you know, visit your, your, your local, state, or federal um, representatives, and it's not like you have to go to your state capitol or to D.C., you can go to their district office. You can even call them on the phone. You, and, and the other thing is, you don't need to talk to the member. You can talk to their staff. They're, the staff usually is more knowledgeable about the member. And if you can present it to the staff member, they will present it to their boss. Um, and hopefully then you can, you can, you can get some change made that way.
0: So pick up the phone.
1: Pick up the phone, send an email, write a letter, whatever it is. Just have a conversation with your with your local
0: representatives or state or federal okay so state or federal representatives. these are the key key target audience here i suppose places of business as well um potentially
1: yep absolutely so you know talk to like for example um if there's a big restaurant chain in your area see if they can increase the number of plant-based items see if they can reduce their use of single-use plastics to reduce pollution in the water and in the landfills. Um, And, you know, in some places they incinerate the garbage. So if you're going to incinerate plastic, you're just adding to the air pollution.
0: And it's particularly nasty stuff that comes out of um, incinerated plastic, right? Right. Absolutely. Yep. Um, So talking to restaurants, um, probably advocating um, on behalf of um, the, the food deserts so uh, right um, corner there's different things you can do there like the corner stores that are present in um, a lot of food deserts often don't carry um, fresh produce and, and I know that in my area there's um, there's programs to drop off produce at the uh, and in my area there's um, groups who um, rescue produce uh, from the grocery store. And prevent it from going to waste
1: yeah that's great if your area has that has that system set up um so i would say find out if if your area can can do that if they can't you know advocate to your to your local government to make that a reality
0: now one reason why you know this is this is a nice big win-win um when you talk about food waste because You have the potential of um, checking the box of of addressing uh, the food deserts for your for your patients especially those in a more challenged socioeconomic status but also food waste turns out to be one of the biggest contributors to climate change Uh, i don't know if you've read any of that science there's a website called drawdown.org that uh, ranks the different climate solutions based on their um, scientific analysis and tries to compare apples to apples. You know, solar uh, solar panel rooftop solar versus electric cars versus other things. And um, by some measures, food waste turns out to be the number one contributor to climate change. Is that absolutely, uh,
1: absolutely, especially in the U.S. where we waste so much food. Um, when it is perfectly safe to eat, um, still tastes good, and can be and can be given to those that are less fortunate, for example, the homeless, or donated to food banks, okay, or yeah. restaurants.
0: It's yeah, it's mind boggling that yeah, and we waste something like a third of the food right that we produce. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's and 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 it's and and the thing is, it can be done. It's been done all over the world. Um, I remember speaking to a city official at a meeting one time from uh, the city of Ghent in Belgium. And she wanted to to actually do this, you know, um, save food that was going to be discarded and A, give it to restaurants and B, give it to the homeless population. And she told me that you know she had a lot of resistance from the local government initially, but then when she presented it and the cost savings and how it would help um, in terms of crime reduction, the homeless population, um, all of those sorts of things, they, they were all for it and it's been a tremendous success. In fact, uh, she said it's, it's, it's growing to other cities in the country.
0: Yeah, I think uh, in, in our country, um, if I recall correctly, most of our food waste seems to happen later uh, in, in the cycle of food production to consumption. Yes. And so mainly at the grocery store level or in your refrigerator level. <clears throat> so the grocery store level should be a solvable problem. There's even been a precedent that some communities have made it illegal to throw away food. right? Uh, something like that. So not, not that we wanna throw regulation at people, but... Um, desperate times require desperate measures. It's, it's not 20, not 1990. It is 2021. Especially
1: when it's a win-win for everybody, for both, and, and especially for companies, for business, as well as government. I don't, I don't see the downside for, for anybody involved.
0: The win-wins are huge, but sometimes those uh, institutions uh, that, that are in power need to be convinced that there is actually a win. A lot of one of the challenges is that a lot of the existing institutions uh, don't really want to change very much. <clears throat> um, so we're talking a lot about advocacy. So, so the first thing, first line of business was addressing some of those social determinants of health. These are the people who are going to be most at risk uh, from the effects of climate change, um, and then and then getting to sort of the lifestyle stuff, which is always important, especially when you're faced with rip roaringly high levels of Particulates and pollution in the atmosphere, um, and heat and other things that are compromising your um, your health, uh, and then and then getting to <clears throat> um, the advocacy level. So the micro level where you're advocating on behalf of an individual, and then on the macro level where we're advocating on behalf of your community. Uh, and this is something that we physicians aren't trained a lot on, so it's appropriate to 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 give a lot of these examples. Um, uh, of this macro level advocacy, the letter writing, picking up the phone, talking to your insurance commissioner, talking to um, business leaders, getting active in, I don't know, Rotary or whatever organizations. Uh, so this, this, is what, this is what being a physician in the 21st century looks like if you wanna address this behemoth of a, of a problem called climate change.
1: Yep, absolutely. And, and if, so there's so many different ways to tackle this. When I say advocacy, it it doesn't it's it's not just political officials. You can advocate directly to companies, to your local businesses. You can advocate um, to the business council of your region. You can advocate to religious institutions, so like your church or your synagogue or your mosque or your temple or whatever. Um, you can advocate to your school district. You know, to teach kids about this, have community gardens, and then the kids will 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 bring this home and teach their parents, which is great. Um, and then you can spread it that way. So there's so many different ways um, to 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 advocate.
0: And it's just it's a little bit daunting, though, isn't it?
1: It can be daunting, but you know, you don't have to do something that is you know, that's going to get you on the local news. You don't have to do something so big, just do, a, just, just do a small project. If everybody did a small project or if a few people came together and another few people came together and did small projects, you could make tremendous change. You know, the greatest changes in history weren't these big, you know, master plans. It was all these small changes that over time created big changes. And 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 if you need training on how to do this, you know there's so many groups that will train you, especially medical societies. Um, there's probably medical. There's probably your local medical society, your state medical society, definitely the national medical societies that will teach you how to advocate, um, both at the government level but also at your patient level. And many times they're free or pretty low price. And the benefit is you can get CME on top of it
0: and and you've taken advantage of this kind of stuff right you've gotten a lot of different kinds of training and certifications
1: right so I've done um um I've done uh Advocacy training through the American Medical Association, through the American College of Physicians, um, through the American College of Preventive Medicine, and then some of the state societies, including Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, which, which as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a co-chair of. Um, so there's a lot of different societies, and you can even go outside of medicine. So you know maybe your local Sierra Club or your Climate Reality Project chapter. Or it can be the Rotary Club, as you had mentioned. Um, it may even be your church group may have advocacy uh, training. Um, sometimes some businesses have advocacy training. Um, obviously, those businesses will have advocacy training for something that's, that's important to them, but the principles still apply. You can learn those principles and apply it to what's important to you.
0: So it seems like... Um... These organizations are a fitting place to um, to spend some time because I think part of our job is to convince our colleagues, right?
1: Yep, absolutely. So if you have this training and you do some of this work and you can show results for it, you know, either that you've improved the health of your patient population or you've made a change in your local community you'll start attracting other people to you, including your colleagues, and they'll want to get more involved too. So, for example, let's say you spend most of your clinical time in a hospital or a health system. You know, do a small project there, get them to change the menu in the cafeteria, get them to start a recycling program, get them to uh, reduce their use of paper. Um, get them to if you've got a large parking lot at your health at your medical center, get them to use an electric or other alternative energy vehicle to bring patients and staff um, to the hospital front entrance. If you can do that, you know, the hospital will eventually be happy. They may they may be resistant at first, but if you can present it so that's a win win for them um, and they see the results, then your colleagues will 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 want to get involved as well.
0: So this, this is a biggie, um, uh, what you just mentioned. So working within your institution, your place of employment, uh, if it's a hospital system, um, engaging with their um, community serving mission to address whatever it might be, social determinants and um, health overall, um, and, uh, and, and pick, pick off things that aren't perfect in your health system, like typical menus you mentioned. Um, so getting food uh, food choices, and you've done this, right? Haven't you gone through that specific activity? You've gotten menus changed at hospitals? And-
1: um i've I've worked towards getting menus changed. i what what I've been able to do is get them to include a plant-based diet option for patients when it wasn't previously there. Um, so that's one step. Um, there's a few actually, there's more than a few hospitals around the country that now have plant-based or vegan menus that are available to the patients the important thing though or one of the important things when you're trying to change the the menus at hospitals is get them to change it for both the patients and the staff because if the staff are now eating plant-based foods in the cafeteria they'll see the benefit and they'll be, and they'll start asking you questions, or start learning about it, and they'll start advocating it for their patients. Because you know, a lot of people who don't eat plant-based diets but eat the typical American diet, they may think, "Well, plant-based, I'm not going to eat a salad every day, no way." But then they'll see that you know, it's more than just a salad every day. It's more than just lettuce, tomato, and onion. Um, so they'll, so number one, you'll help them in their health, which you want to help your colleagues in their health because we need them to stay around to to help patients. But number two, they will now be advocates for the plant-based diets as well.
0: Yeah, I've seen some research where um, hospital systems rolled out um, lifestyle counseling uh, for their employees and seen dramatic improvements in at at least the cost of their health insurance costs for their employee base. Um, The healthcare system I've read is, a major, major uh, contributor to climate change. I think in this country, I read it, it was about 10% of our uh, carbon footprint is um, due to the healthcare system, which right. isn't a shock because it's about, from, for, uh, according to GDP, it's about 18% of our GDP. Um, so you would think it would have a hu- pretty huge uh, footprint. But anyway, bottom line, there's a lot of waste and consumption and, and uh, burning of fuels associated with our, our line of business. That's right. So working working in those institutions. So working with uh, within your institution, um, and then working more broadly w- with colleagues and trying to bring them into the movement, um, trying to get them to be themselves activists and um, advocating at the macro level and at the micro level on behalf of their their patients. Okay,
1: so I've one we- one thing I'll say about you know talking to your colleagues. Don't make it like a didactic or like, I'm teaching you this, you need to do this. You know, do it like a, like a normal conversation. You know, your colleagues, you know, what their, what their personal life is, what their professional life is and bring it up. You know, like if you have a colleague who recently had a heart attack, you know, talk about, okay, I want to help you. Like how are things going with your doctors and your medicine? Well, have you thought about going into a plant-based diet? Cause it will help you and it may help your patients, you know, bring it up that way. Because if you try, and this is for anybody, if you try to tell somebody that this is what you have to do, they're likely. To be more resistant. That's just human nature.
0: Yep, especially if you're telling physicians what to do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put us top of the list of, of um, most commandable um, people in, right. in the United States. We we have yeah. a fair bit of swagger among right. us.
1: And 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 we have to get away from that old adage that doctors used to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. No, no. You need to be the role model.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 just absurd. The whole the whole notion, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, okay, so engaging with your colleagues through professional organizations and even sidebar conversations. Um, you know, trying to get them involved in the different activities that you're doing. Um, you know, like those uh, we have a, a Earth Day cleanup coming up and um, I'm conscious of, of the fact that a lot of a lot of the things that we do uh, end up being sort of window dressing uh, um, moral licensing if you will mm-hmm. um, that don't really amount to substantive improvements and so it, it would seem that um, you know at least at those occasions there's an Earth Day cleanup going on that's not going to make a link difference for climate change you can at least um, have a speech or tell people why why this is important to you i mean just have conversations and right i mean we we've got to we've got to convey a lot of information you know to, to really address an, a a complex problem like this effectively you you need information and and we haven't been trained in it in healthcare right so so maybe Maybe education is another part of of this checklist. Educate yourself, educate your colleagues, what do you think?
1: Right, educate yourself, educate your colleagues, but when you educate your colleagues or the general public, it has to be manageable and it has to be, you know, you can't throw everything at once because it is a lot of information and a lot of change in people's lives and how they've been brought up. Um, So you want to make it manageable. yeah, there, there was another point, it's, it's, it's escaped me, but it'll come back.
0: Um, yeah, so educating colleagues in, in a way that doesn't uh,
1: scare them off.
0: <laughs> doesn't boss them around as to what to yeah. do. And educate patients, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, educating patients as to why climate change is important, you know, if, if we don't get the mass uh, <clears throat> level of interest in changing and there's no way we're going to meet uh, the International Panel on Climate Change's um, goals and, and stay within our carbon, bu- carbon budget um, by year 2030 to, to avoid the runaway climate change that we uh, so dread. So right. e- educating patients is a part of it. it. Or
1: even meet our NDC goals for the, for, for the Paris Agreement, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Educate, how, how, do you, how do you think we should educate patients about climate change? So
1: it, you have to target it to um, what stage of life they're in, what their socioeconomic status is, what their profession is, and what they can actually do. So, you know, people use like, like we've talked about for the last 30 years about recycling. That's great. Recycle. That's just one step. Put put uh, LED or 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 um, uh, energy efficient bulbs in your house, you know that sort of thing. Drive less. Drive the most uh, fuel efficient car if you can afford an alternative fuel car. Get that. Um, don't use air conditioning um, as much uh, uh, except as you need it. You know, like don't put your don't put your AC thermostat down to sixty eight degrees. You know, for example, unless you really need that. Um, those are all well and good, but talk to them about. Use public transport if it's available. Eat a plant-based diet. Get some exercise. You know, don't drive half a mile to the store. You can walk to there, and it'll be good for your health as well. Um, don't smoke, obviously. Um, you know, when you're making when you're making trips when you, when you're doing errands, plan it out so that you drive as little as possible. It reduces the air pollution, but it also saves you time. And time is money. Um, So that's the other thing, like one of the, what I've learned is two of the things that will motivate people is how does it affect your, their health and their family's health directly? And how does it affect theirs and their family's pocketbook directly? And all of these solutions will affect both in a
0: positive way. Then get to patient health and finances financial. Uh, Okay, so this rounds out. We've got a list of 10 10 items um, that we're we're recommending physicians should sort of run through this checklist on a semi-regular basis to make sure that they are leading a career that's um, ideal for um, combating this major problem of climate change on behalf of their patients. If, you know, I guess we have about 12 things now. If, um, if the world were to follow this checklist um, at, at the time of need, if all physicians and providers were to start, start running through this particular checklist, um, what do you think would be the impact?
1: Um, number one, we would have a healthier population number 2 we would have less use of healthcare resources particularly emergency or hospital resources and as is talked about every year in the government you know healthcare expenditures continue to rise and it's increasing our debt so it would be good for our economy third we would have cleaner air and cleaner water which i don't think anybody would be opposed to Number four, from an American perspective, we could lead in technology and industry by developing greener resources and more sustainable farming practices. Um, And number five, um, we would have a generally happier population, both in terms of fulfillment as well as mental health.
0: Okay, so you think that some of these, these things that we've talked about, probably especially the lifestyle things or addressing social determinants has the power of improving overall happiness.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Very cool. So this is, this is a uh, potentially very powerful checklist if we can just get it um, to be read and implemented at, at all the times that it needs to be, which is on a daily basis, everywhere in the world Mm -hmm. because i guess climate change is 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 really at a crisis level and it's an emergency and um we you know desperate times require desperate desperate measures as i said we need to act right yep
1: absolutely and the time is now we can't wait
0: we can't wait and we and we can't wait um we can't institute half measures either i mean it's not going to be sufficient like you mentioned recycling Um, recycling is is the least effective of reduce reuse recycle it's the one that doesn't require you have to consume less we have to consume less right we have to we have to change the way we transport ourselves we have to change really we have to change our diets right Um, so dramatic changes are required here this is not a time for moderation
1: We need active measures for the recycling example you gave. That's a passive measure. The issue with recycling is that, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'm recycling the plastic. Well, stop using the plastic. You'll have less to recycle. If you stop using the plastic, then that's better because then you still are using energy to recycle it. If it's even getting recycled. Right. Many times it's just getting thrown away in a landfill, either in this country or another country.
0: Right yeah we export our um, a lot of our carbon footprint to other countries in the form of either waste that we're generating or um, energy that they're burning to produce our goods that's right our bads our cheap plastic uh, Chinese junk Mm -hmm. okay well this is uh, not an easy checklist um, to build and um, it's going to require a lot of change but it's something we absolutely have to implement if we want to survive toward the latter half of this century without too much drastic effects right absolutely well i have to thank you here uh this is amazing you are an incredible luminary it fills me with pride that you um that i even knew you years ago before you were even um the the guy that you are now Um, you're doing amazing work and i'm really grateful that you've taken the time to enlighten me and our listeners um with with this wisdom that you've accumulated over the years, these steps that we really we really need to sort of run through this checklist, we really need to do this stuff that we've listed here. Um, so many, many thanks for your, your time and your expertise and everything you're doing. Thank you so much, Dave. Okay, well, I wish you all the best. I might have to borrow you in the future for another checklist, cause you got so many other um, areas of wisdom and expertise that uh, we wouldn't want those to go to waste, right? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Glad to do it. Okay. Take care. All right. Take
1: care. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you found that discussion as stimulating and informative as I did. Uh, Dr. Bansel has brought a lot of really good ideas. So here's the final checklist that we came up with. This is the checklist for physicians to save your patients from climate change. Number one, physician, educate thyself. A problem as complex as climate change requires expertise. We physicians should know climate change as well as we know the heart. There are a multitude of resources including the American College of Physicians' Climate Change Toolkit. Number two, educate your colleagues as well. Engage with your colleagues through local medical organizations. Your activism will begin to attract attention from colleagues. As they say, it takes 30 years for a new idea to make it into clinical practice, and we simply don't have 30 years to solve the climate emergency. Number three, educate patients. At least make it known that Earth's climate is changing for the worse, and this puts everyone at risk uh, for new health threats. Tell them the win-wins that they can achieve when they address their climate footprint and they live in a healthier, and less environmentally damaging manner. Walking or cycling instead of driving, plant-based diet, bunching errands into one trip. These are a number of things that people can do to reduce their footprint and potentially also help their health. Um, Both the patient health and also our financial health can improve when we tread more lightly. Number four, educate our next generation. Uh, In my opinion, we can't afford to graduate generation after generation of people from our education system without the skills and sustainability they need or the knowledge or the literacy they need around this important topic of climate change. So there have been curriculums proposed, and we need to advocate on their behalf. I think that the education should include not only education around sustainability, but also around health and nutrition, because I think the, th- the, the three topics are totally interlinked. Number five, help your patients address the social determinants of health. It is, th- it is these consequences of poverty that make most people vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Become an expert in the services available to your, to your community and refer to them. Most important areas that you should have referrals for include food and where to get healthy food, how to prepare it, transportation, uh, what can you walk to in your community, and how to use public transportation and free shuttle services and housing, how to obtain assistance for rent, air conditioning, and heat. Number six, advocate for your patients. Use your voice as a physician to make phone calls or dictate letters on your patient's behalf. Enlist the help from social services, either from within your own office or referring to outside social service agencies to stand up for your patients. For example, contact the utility company to stand up for a patient who cannot pay for their electricity bill. Number seven, plant-based nutrition. We've mentioned it many times before, but it is is such a win-win for the health of our patients and our climate. The whole plant foods are by far the lowest in emissions and the highest in health-promoting effects. Elimination of red meat and dairy in particular is a huge win-win for the patient and for global health. Number eight, improve air quality. So there is a good website, airnow.gov, where you can look up your zip code and find what is the air quality in my area. And it is important to avoid exercising outside during the times of poor air quality. Replace your gas stove with an electric one. Switch to a heat pump instead of a natural gas powered furnace. Source your electricity from wind or solar. This will indirectly reduce the amount of carbon that is being admitted into the atmosphere in your region. Number nine, food waste is a particularly egregious problem for the climate and for our economic security. This has been solved many times all over the world and it can be solved in your community but you might have to get a little active to make it happen. Teach patients to do what they can do to never let food spoil. Always cook the food that's getting closest to its expiration date so that you don't ever have to throw food away. Number 10, work within your institution. Encourage your institution, whether it be a hospital or a smaller company or practice, and to do things like track its carbon footprint. If we can measure it, we can improve it. Change the menu for patients and for staff in your institution if you have like a cafeteria uh, to include plant-based menu options, menu options that have a lower footprint. Set up electric vehicle charging, less disposable plastic. There's many other things that I'm sure you can dream up. So that's our checklist. I hope it helps and please feel free to visit the website healthrules.org where there is a page about this checklist and including this podcast recording, but also a handout that you can print out. And with that, I will wish you happy Earth Day, everyone.